The title for today's talk is The One-Dimensional Self. In, in, in a way, today's talk follows on the footsteps of yesterday's. So not, not that you need to have been here yesterday. Just for those who were here yesterday, um, yesterday's talk was uh, entitled Who's the Decider? And there I recalled how President Bush pushed, puffed, puffed himself up uh, with the statement, I'm the decider, claiming credit for what his administration had done. And, and then I proceeded to draw a parallel with that part of us, call it the, the self, the me, the I, the the ego, the top dog, the inner top dog, whatever, that is just as eager as Mr. Bush to puff itself up and take credit for our decisions. Yet, as I tried to point out yesterday, this narrow self is largely a figment of our imagination, a selective image of who we think we are, and one that is very unidimensional. Today I'm going to focus on this unidimensionality in particular. Of course, this is nothing new. It's, it's a foundation of the teachings of the Buddha. It's clear wherever you read the scriptures. I run into a, I mean, it's been in our culture too. I just, I just ran into this quote from William James of, uh, about a hundred years ago. This is what he said, a famous psychologist. I have no doubt whatsoever, says William James, that most people live, whether physically, intellectually, or morally, in a very restricted circle of their potential being. They make use of a very small, small portion of the possible consciousness. Much like a man who out of his whole bodily organism should get into the habit of using and moving only his little finger. We have, we all have reservoirs of life to draw upon, of which we do not dream. So what I'm talking about is mainstream, and yet it's often forgotten. How, how is it that, to use William James' words, we are so fond of limiting ourselves to this little finger? <coughs> there, there are really two questions. How we do it and why we do it. So let me take them in turn, starting with the how.
just talking about ourselves, making ourselves unidimensional, just flat, minimal. And the question is now, how do we do that? How do we end up reducing all these manifold dimensions of our lives into a yardstick to be used to evaluate ourselves? And a yardstick, by definition, is unidimensional, right? I mean, all you do is measure one dimension. How many yards? The Buddha, for, for other reasons, was used to illustrate the, the self by using piles of seeds that we tend to attach to, you know, different aspects of ourselves, piles of seeds. I, I'm uh, sorry, the poor guy, he didn't know about the Lego, but I'll show you the Lego is much better than the piles of seeds. I, I've been playing with it for the last few days now. Um, it, it, it really works very well. You see, there's all these parts. I, I hope you can see them somehow. I hope I can display them well. There are all these parts of ourselves. Lego pieces, I've used different colors, you know. <coughs> Bear with me for a moment because they're kind of hooked up together. And so, we could, of course, satisfy ourselves with displaying this array of pieces of different colors and so on, but do we do that? No way. That's not what we want to do. What we want to do is, is measure success. And so we pile them in towers, you know. And so in a tower, all the, the only dimension that matters is the vertical. And so we started at school, then college, elementary school, report card one. Then we get grades, different grades in college. Oh, I'm going too fast perhaps, but anyway. I'm, I'm using blue to represent grades, academic accomplishments, or whatever. And uh, using yellow to represent sports, surely we will bring sports along. Most of us, I mean, I was not good at that, so I was always going for the blue. We go for different colors, you know. And, um, and then social and sexual accomplishments. I count very much, do Yep. You know. And so we keep building our, our tower. As soon as we, even before we get out of college, the greenbacks come in. <laughs> this, this become eventually the major bricks. And so there we go, keep piling them up, you know. The income, the bottom line is really growing there. Wow, isn't he or she lucky, you know. I mean, surely there are different styles. There are those 
who are not interested in the green aspects, and so on. True. It depends on the culture, too. I grew up in, in a third world culture, and greens didn't matter so much. But all the others, wow. Well, sports, I, I couldn't compete, so, but I, I was left with the others. Oops. So, there we go. We keep piling the bricks. Productivity in whatever it is. Writing, art, craft, whatever, and for each one there will be hopefully a, a green brick to accompany it. Political attainment, a lot of green bricks go with that. You know, good job, a good match. Even that could produce some greenbacks too, you know. And then, of course, as we age, the yellow now is not representing social accomplishment, I mean, uh, sports accomplishment. It, it represents the good cholesterol. <laughs> we go to the doctor, we discuss with everybody, you know my cholesterol, my bad cholesterol dropped, my good cholesterol went up. Boy, big tower of good cholesterol. <laughs> and of course there's always the next egg and so on. Well, there we are. We've built the towers. In our obsession with the height of the tower, we've really let go by the wayside. We have sidelined all the other things that do matter. It's the grades, not the learning. It's the score, not the pleasure of playing a game. It's a sexual contest, not the love. It's the accumulation of money in our account, not what money can actually bring us, which, which is considerable, of course. And again, is the keeping track of our cholesterol instead of enjoying our body as it is, you know? What can we do? It's success, not creativity. And there we go. That's what I call unidimensionality. Just the height of a tower. I didn't make a big one, I could maybe have made might as well make a much bigger one. <laughs> oh yeah, I have a base for it so it doesn't topple. I forgot. Yeah. Whatever. Not many red ones there. Maybe we put a red one right there too. Of course, not all things go well. Sometimes, in fact, we start losing bricks, you know, with the economic crisis nowadays. There goes a bunch of bricks and, and things like that. We, we lose our job, maybe. We lose face socially. Our relationships break up. Our health deteriorate, whatever. So surely the, the, the tower doesn't always grow, but we're left with whatever we're left. Okay, so 
Why? Really, why do we do that? Why on earth? One, one way to see through this is just to look at guys like Donald Trump, you know. All he wants to do, wanted, I think, I don't know whether he could or could not, there was a time when all he wanted to do is to build the tallest tower, physical tower in Manhattan. But it's obvious, it's a monument to his eye. The, the, the ego takes over. The taller, the better. And so, what, what end up happening, to really symbolize as well, is that this little guy sits on top of the tower. <laughs> And, and to, to represent it even better, to top it all up, there's a little flag that goes on top and says, me. So, the, whoopsie, oh, this is bound to happen too sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's impossible. To, it's a little hard, but impossible. Thank you. And so, the tower has become really and truly and uniquely the flagpole of me. That's what it was all about. Oh, isn't he happy? All the rest, by the wayside. Pride has taken over. Any aspect of our life that does not contribute to the height of the flagpole, forget it. In fact, it becomes distracting. Solidarity becomes distracting. It interferes with the search for maximal success, for the me-first sort of movement. And, of, of course, the tower, the tower needs to come down when we die. I mean, that for sure. There's going to be no me to sit there. All this doesn't matter, you know. The money we've like, accumulated, I don't know. What happens to it, you know. Things we've accumulated, I don't know what happens to it. Our curriculum, it's there. Worth nothing. So, that's one form of failure. But there are other forms of failure. In fact, sometimes, sometimes, the, the tower doesn't seem to grow up, but grows down. It accumulates. We do, we flunk out of school. We're the last team in the league. Our debt is horrendous. But you know what? The eye is not going to let this pass. It constructs an inverted towel for himself and, you know, gets this uh, perverse 
delight in being a failure, everything going wrong. You know, the, the, the typical character here, of course, is a masochist, a person who delights in suffering, in pain, in reverses. And of course, those who we know who spent hours and hours talking about their illnesses and the difficult, not because they want to solve them, no way, not, not at all, <laughs> forget it. That'd be the worst that can happen. <laughs> and so there is a, a figure, another figure, we could use the same, but I'll use another for the inverted curve. There it goes. I didn't bother to make it so, so, so long, but, and in fact, it, it can also hold the flag. Whoops. Yeah, yeah, these inverted towers have the problems. Yeah. Anything that doesn't contribute to the downtrend, forget it. This person makes some money, wishes she didn't because now she's going to lose a little bit of that height. I, I assure you, you know, all of us have that, that aspect in ourselves. <laughs> So, what's alternative? What's alternative? So with the bricks, of course, we could just spread them out, display them, enjoy each one of them for whatever it's worth. Uh, uh, perhaps a, a easier metaphor to use are these, uh, I don't know, these items that I stole from, we find, see them, I don't know whether they are shavings of the forest or something like that. They are colorful little things, you know. That's me. There are leaves and shavings and fruits. And you, I found these in my room. You, you may find them in all the rooms, and certainly they are spread around here. And then for good measure, I've added uh, a bunch of autumn leaves. You cannot construct a tower with any of that, but it's rich and it displays a whole range of possibilities for us to be. So that's what I call the multidimensional self. And this is what I call the unidimensional self. I think the difference can be striking. Of course, uh, there is a more uh, complete and, and uh, a rich uh, metaphor for the multidimensional self, only this is 
I, I couldn't demonstrate that physically here. I can demonstrate this bunch of things physically. But that particular metaphor is one that perhaps you know, is called the net of Indra. Um, one of the Mahayana scriptures tells about Indra, the emperor of the Vedic gods, who in his palace had a huge net hanging. The net, the, the net was, a, and continues to be, of course, a, a metaphor for the universe. In this net, at each interjection, intersection, sorry, intersection of the strands, there was a jewel inserted. And because of the arrangement of the net, each jewel reflected all the others. I think this is a powerful metaphor for me. And of course, as I said, this is uh, taken to represent the universe, all of humanity, sure, but just as well can be taken to represent the different parts of yourself, because by golly, we have a great diversity inside if we just let it manifest. So, the eye, of course, is there in waiting, you know, trying to do his best to suppress all this multidimensionality and make things, again, tower-like, flagpole-like. And, and so, we need to be watchful, sure. Master Dogen, who was a, a tremendous Japanese teacher of centuries ago, he founded the Soto Zen tradition, put it beautifully. He said, when the self advances, the 10,000 things retreat. Footnote here. In the Far East, at least, in, in many other places in the world, the 10,000 things is a, an expression to mean the, the multitude. Here in America, we'd said the zillion things, the innumerable things. So, when the self advances, the 10,000 things retreat. But, when the self retreats, the 10,000 things advance. So, how do we facilitate this process? The retreat, the withdrawal, the not being always up there in front in our face of the eye, and the advancement of the 10,000 things. One beautiful and very effective way of doing that is through practice. Formal practice, if you wish. We sit, we watch the breath, 
Oh, and, yes, sure. Then the thought comes up, oh, what a beautiful breath, I must repeat it, you know, <laughs> reproduce it. Oh, what a great sit. I hope the next sit is at least as good as this. And up we go, a couple of bricks into our flagpole. What are the blue ones, I guess, you know, whatever. <laughs> up there, blue, blue bricks, accomplishments. And there's a little flagpole already. But the beauty of the sit is that we see through ourselves. We see ourselves making the flagpole, and we find, we realize how preposterous this is, you know, to pile up a couple of bricks because we think that we had a good sit. Good grief. <laughs> but, but not to criticize ourselves, but to, to get an understanding. Of, because that part of ourselves, that pious break, is also part of all this. It's only part of all this, but it's part of all this. And so, the futility of the flagpole becomes manifest. We see that it doesn't disburden our suffering, quite the contrary. Piles it on. question is, as we realize this in the sitting, how much conviction does it carry? If it carries enough conviction, it becomes a powerful tool for transformation. And so we begin to dismantle it. What's the point? And the 10,000 things can bloom. The 10,000 flowers can bloom. This is the, the light motif, if you wish, as they say in German, of the practice, the, the motto of the practice, to catch the mind in the act. Now, let, let me just clarify one thing, because it, there will seem to be a contradiction between the instructions I give, or any of us gives, about sitting, and this business of opening up to the, the many dimensions of ourselves. We focus on the breath, and yet this is supposed to open us up. <coughs> But yes, that's the way to do it. Focusing on the breath is simply to make sure we stop interrupting ourselves, to hone the mind, to develop a mind that can and knows how to focus and go deeply into things. But as we focus into one thing, other things start resonating. Remember Indra's net. Each jewel in the net reflects on others. Our breath reflects on the rest, if we look deeply and carefully enough.
So each object of attention in the practice becomes an echo chamber of all of our experience. Again, repeating the Indra's net metaphor. The breath, for instance, very naturally can connect our consciousness with the relaxation of body and mind, particularly in the out-breath. But, you know, for each one of us, what's reflected in each thing that we observe is likely to be different, for sure. But in, in another very obvious example, say that we focus our attention on the heart and we start feeling the beating of the heart. Surely that is a door to a visiting of emotions without storyline, just emotions, direct emotions. Or there's a tension in a muscle, sometimes in the back, or wherever. And that becomes a, a way of connecting with attention on the mind. Again, not necessarily the, at this point to figure out what it's about. The important thing is to acknowledge the mind is tense. It's one of the many things we have. Not to be, you know, piled up as success or taken away as failure or whatever, or piled up as failure, if you wish. No. Just we penetrate different levels of experience as we focus in one object. And these hidden aspects of experience do reveal themselves without us chasing after them. All we do is be open to whatever it is that we can sense. So this is about the formal practice, which is what, of course, we, we do weekends like this one. And then, of course, there's also practice in daily life, you know. A little crowded there, but I'm sure I'll manage. Um, this is uh, from Pema Chodron, a very powerful teacher in a Tibetan tradition, actually. And she talks about uh, what she calls pause practice, practice by pausing in the midst of life. A certain discipline is required to step outside our cocoon and receive the magic of our surroundings. Pause practice, the practice of taking three conscious breaths at any moment when we notice that we are stuck, is simple, is a simple but powerful practice that each of us can do at any given moment. Pause practice can transform each day of your life. It creates an open doorway to the sacredness of the place in which you find yourself. 
the vastness, stillness, and magic of the place will dawn upon you. If you let your mind relax and drop ju for just a few breaths the storyline that you're working so hard to maintain. By the way, storylines almost always have to do with putting more bricks on the tower or, or checking the height of the tower if, if you don't manage to put the bricks on. If you pause just long enough, you can reconnect with exactly where you are with the immediacy of your experience. When you are waking up in the morning and you aren't even out of bed yet, even if you're running late, you could just look out and drop the storyline and take three consecutive breaths. Just be where you are. When you're washing up or making your coffee or tea or brushing your teeth, just create a gap in your discursive mind. By the way, she says your discursive mind, because it's clear, she says all the time, she also has a discursive mind. She's discovered all this by herself. That's a great gift that she gives us. So take three conscious breaths. Just pause. Let it be a contrast to being all caught up. Let it be like popping a bubble. Let it be just a moment of time and then go on. And so, through practice, we begin to open ourselves to the fullness of life. We come to our senses, as the title of John Kabat-Zinn's book says, both figuratively and in the literal meaning of the ter term. We come to inhabit, both figuratively, figuratively and in the literal sense, our senses, and through them, our body and our mind. Most of us prefer to be oblivious of our body, particularly when it's in pain, you know, when it aches, or when we're doubtful about the impression we make on others, you know. Wow, you know, my big tummy, what are you going to think of that? Maybe I could push it in. So, it's necessary to be aware of our body, and we can do that just in sitting, you know. Just feel it. And it's a gift, you know. This is neuro neurologist, I think he is. Oliver Sacks, and he has uh, had patients who have this, this illness where uh, one particular patient he's written about who lack almost all what's called proprioception, 
proprio, sorry, proprioception, that is, sense of our body. This woman couldn't feel her body. All in very strong wind. So she'd go to places where there's strong wind because it was such a gift to just feel her body. We have the ability to do that without too much effort. Let's, let's open up to our body. Let's increase, bring that dimension into play as well. And of course, just as there's a, the landscape of our body, the bodyscape, there's a landscape of our mind, the mindscape. And as I mentioned before, we, we can reach it very clearly through the senses of the body, because mind and body are not separate, of course. We, we make that separation. But if we are really present with our body, inevitably, we are present with our moods, with our emotions, as I said specifically before about the heartbeat and about uh, other sensations, you know. Uh, and then there is what the Buddha calls a sixth sense. In his culture, that was very clear. There was five senses and a sixth sense, which is the sense that has to do with connecting with the mind through the mind. And just as the, sometimes our body lights up in practice, it's so beautiful when the mind happens to light up in practice. It does. I mean, not because we tell them to do so. It's not in our power to make it light up. As I said before, uh, yesterday, I think, it's just, it lights up. Now, it's a little bit like, like in our car, I, I grant you, you know, sometimes what lights up are the red lights on the dashboard, right? Hey, <laughs> I run out of gas. Hey, there's a problem here. Bless those red lights. They're very important, too. We need to see the problem and, and connect with the problems and, and eventually help them be solved. Sure. Absolutely. But then there are the red lights and there are the other beautiful lights. And there's the lights, for instance, I find tremendously useful, that connect us, that remind us, connect us with our capacity to love, to love others, and yes, to love ourselves. So let me close with a poem that I'm very fond of. I'm afraid I've, I've shared with the groups like this other times. Anyway, it can be a repetition. It's by Derek Walcott and it's called Love After Love. 
The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again this stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give wine, give bread. Give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you. Loved you all your life, whom you have ignored for another who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. So, let's just do that. Let's just peel our own image from the mirror. The little woman here was so proud of me. You know, it builds the one-dimensional towers and so on. Peel that off and feast on your life. And let's sit for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.